Welcome to the Uncover Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Nathan Radke, and with me today is the fear that democracy is a fragile, flawed, and delicate institution. This is being recorded in October of 2020, so amongst the many, many other things going on right now that interfere with a person's ability to get a good night's sleep, we are also a few weeks away from an American federal election. Of course, we here at the Uncover Up aren't Americans. We're up in Canada, which is America's neighbor, attic, or hat, depending on if you imagine America to be a property, house, or head. But with America currently the only real superpower on Earth, for now, and with us sharing the world's longest undefended border, for now, it makes sense that we often peer down at what's going on down there. And of course, a lot of you guys listening are living in the USA, and back in the days when we were allowed to travel, I spent some good times in some of your cities. New York, Seattle, Buffalo, Las Vegas, Detroit, Dayton, all of which I love. Also, I know a great many amazing Americans, so even though I'm a Canuck, I pay some attention to the country to the south. And what I see worries me a lot of the time. America is a complicated place, and I have complicated feelings about its history. Like my own country of Canada, the USA was built on the attempted cultural and in some cases physical genocide of the people who were already here. The American Constitution was an impressive attempt at creating a democratic republic at a time when Europe was still largely dominated by the whims and wars of inbred royal families, but those ideas of freedom and equality were fatally infected by the catastrophic idea that some humans were more humans than other humans because of their skin color or if they had internal instead of external genitalia. Obviously, America wasn't the only country that suffered from this sort of infection. Every country has to one degree or another. And there have been some aspects of American history that you just have to tip your hat to. Civil rights movements, original forms of music and visual art, great works of literature, and so on. There have been times in which America's soaring, ringing rhetoric about freedom and democracy has actually been matched by its actions. And of course, many times in which that rhetoric was completely the opposite of the actions of the American government, and we have covered some examples of those in previous episodes of the Uncover-Up. There are many legitimate reasons people in other countries are critical of America's government's and foreign policy decisions. But maybe one of the reasons that we non-Americans are often so critical of America is because of a belief that maybe America could be as good as its promise. And maybe the fragile, flawed, delicate institution of democracy can slowly nudge America towards the country that it could be, a country devoted to freedom and individual rights and freedoms. That's the promise of democracy, that everyone gets a say in the running of their city, state, and country, and that the collective wisdom of all of those minds will tend to lean towards increased happiness and fairness. Democracy isn't perfect, of course. Having four-year terms encourages politicians to only think four years ahead to the next election, which limits long-term planning. People can be swayed with fallacies and empty promises, or have their prejudices and hatreds appealed to. Many people don't even bother voting at all and let the rest of the country make their decisions for them. Elections themselves tend to be messy and unpleasant affairs that can bring out the worst in our natures. Representative democracy always seems to underrepresent some groups of people and overrepresent others. And there is something to be said about being cautious about the wisdom of crowds, which can sometimes turn into mobs. 
But, like Winston Churchill once said in the British House of Parliament, Democracy is the worst form of government except for all the other forms that have been tried. And while the ancient Greek philosopher Plato might have preferred a totalitarian regime, here at the Uncover-Up we are firmly, if pessimistically, pro-democracy. But here's the thing. It's easy to let a democracy slip away. Historically, there have been and continue to be powerful forces that have an interest in taking away agency and voice from the population. It may sound overdramatic to say that any democracy is always in danger of plunging into dictatorship. But a few weeks ago, a friend of mine and I were sitting, obviously a safe distance away from each other on his front porch, and he was saying that it was hard for him to imagine our boring political system getting destabilized and collapsing into chaos or civil war. But there's something to keep in mind. One thing that every collapsed society has in common is that a few months before things got really bad, a couple of knuckleheads were probably sitting on a front porch somewhere saying that they couldn't imagine their society collapsing. And there are moments in which that collapses a lot closer than people think. And so let's look at one of those moments in American history as we examine the business plot conspiracy and ask the question, did wealthy captains of industry try to overthrow the White House and install a dictator in 1933? As always, we need to set up some historical context. If Lee was here, he would likely suggest, and with good reason, that we start at least in the 18th century or maybe earlier. However, I'm going to be a bit lazy and start in the 19th century, which was a time in which the United States underwent a massive political change. Up until 1823, the official position of the United States was that they would stay out of other people's business if those countries stayed out of America's business. Of course, you could argue that the War of 1812 was certainly an example of the American government messing in the business of England, but for the most part, America back then was interested in what happened within her own borders, and not much else. But in 1823, President James Monroe enacted what is known as the Monroe Doctrine, which said that the American government would now take an interest in anything that happened in North, Central, or South America. This was done both officially through acts of Congress and sketchy under the table, as when the American government, quote, accidentally, end quote, misplaced 30,000 muskets by the Mexican border so that the Mexican army could use them to fight the French. And by the end of the 19th century, American soldiers had fought in conflicts in China, Nicaragua, the Ivory Coast, Mexico, Fiji, Taiwan, Samoa, the Philippines, and Cuba. But as the 21st century lurched into existence, the population of America was still not too eager to take part in the massive European idiocy that was about to turn into World War I. And while Canadian soldiers were being machine-gunned to death in 1914 and 1915, America stayed out of it. President Woodrow Wilson won re-election in 1916 using the slogan, He kept us out of the war. However, there were a lot of very wealthy Americans who stood to make money from U.S. involvement in World War I, either because they owned factories that would be asked to produce equipment, or because they had money invested in England and France, and the Germans had blockaded those countries using U-boat submarine fleets to sink merchant vessels. Not coincidentally, the USA would enter into World War I the next year in 1917, in order to, as President Wilson put it in Congress, quote, make the world safe for democracy, end quote. Now, I don't have time on this episode to get into the specifics of World War I. For that, I recommend Dan Carlin's excellent 18-hour podcast, Hardcore History. Instead, I'll sum it up in a few seconds by saying World War I was an elaborate and effective mechanism for viciously butchering human beings and horses. 
When American soldiers returned from the war, they had just spent over a year sacrificing their time, their health, sometimes their limbs or their eyes, and in many cases their mental health for their country. And so they were given a $60 bonus after the war was over to thank them for their service. That's about $1,030 in 2020 money. Enough of an uproar was made about that tiny amount that in 1924 Congress passed the World War Adjusted Compensation Act. Depending on how long a soldier had been overseas, he was entitled to receive as much as $625, or about $10,000 in 2020 money. However, of course, there was a catch. The money wouldn't be paid to the soldiers until 1945, 20 years later. And after the Great Depression hit in 1929, there were a lot of former soldiers who were out of work and in desperate need of financial assistance. By 1932, there was some public support to have the veterans receive their bonuses early. But President Herbert Hoover, who wasn't keen on having the federal government directly help people during the Great Depression, argued that it would cost too much in taxes to give the veterans their bonuses early. In response, a massive group of veterans, over 10,000 strong, known as the Bonus Army, marched on Washington, D.C. with their families and set up a temporary shantytown that they built out of boxes, scrap metal, and lumber, and named, ironically, Hooverville. It had streets and sanitation, and the veterans policed their new town. In order to live there, you needed to provide evidence that someone in your immediate family group had served in the war. And this new city, made of discarded material and populated with discarded human beings, ran fairly smoothly as the veterans waited for the federal government to help them by giving them the money that they had been promised. And it looked promising on June 5, 1932. Congress passed the Wright-Patman bonus bill to get the veterans paid early than had been originally planned, but then that bill was voted down and defeated two days later in the U.S. Senate. A month later, Hoover wanted Hoovertown shut down and ordered in the police to clear it out. The police were completely outnumbered by the veterans, and when the veterans refused to abandon Hooverville, some of the police drew their revolvers and fired into the crowd, murdering two of the veterans, William Huska and Eric Carlson, both of whom survived the horrors of trench warfare only to be gunned down in their own country's capital city. On July 28th, the 12th Infantry Regiment and the 3rd Cavalry Regiment, supported by six light tanks, surrounded the camp. At first, the veterans cheered, thinking the army would support their cause. But then, at the orders of Commander General Douglas MacArthur, who thought the camp must be full of communists, and against the orders of President Hoover, the army advanced on Hoovertown with bayonets and tear gas. Fifty-five veterans were injured, and the twelve-week-old baby of one of the families was killed. So if you were wondering if American troops had ever been ordered to use chemical weapons against Americans on American soil, the answer is, yes, they have. But now, let's stop where we are and go back in time again. In those late 19th century American wars we mentioned earlier, there was a young soldier with the extremely 19th century name of Smedley Butler. Butler was a Quaker, a pacifist branch of Christianity, but when he was 16 he lied about his age in order to join up with the U.S. Marines to go fight in the Spanish-American War. After his tour of duty there, he was sent to the Philippines to fight a Filipino rebel group with the still-awesome name of the Insurrectos. After his first taste of combat there, Butler got a tattoo from his throat to his waist of an eagle, a globe, and an anchor. After that tour, he was sent to Tianjin in China during the Boxer Rebellion, then all around Central America and the Caribbean to fight the Banana Wars on behalf of the United States and on behalf of the United Fruit Company. Then he fought in Honduras, then Nicaragua, then Mexico, then Haiti. 
1915, Butler had seen a lot of fighting, had been injured several times, and had personally killed several other human beings, had been promoted to major, and become one of the most decorated soldiers in American history. When the Americans entered World War I, now Brigadier General Butler was placed in command of a very muddy camp in France where he won the respect of his troops by stealing a large pile of duckboards and building a dry place for his soldiers to sleep, thus earning him the nickname Old Duckboard. By the end of that war, he had earned the Army Distinguished Service Medal, the Navy Distinguished Service Medal, and the French Order of the Black Star. He had also developed a severe distaste for war, and a suspicion that it wasn't being fought for the reasons that his government was giving. Instead of fighting for freedom and democracy, Butler came to believe that he was fighting on behalf of capitalists and corporations so that they could increase their profits while allowing others to die for them. In addition, Butler was alarmed to see the rise of fascism, both in the form of European governments such as Mussolini's in Italy, and in American organizations such as the Silver Legion of America and the German-American Bund, large groups that grew their inspiration from Italy and Germany and sought to reproduce those forms of totalitarian government in the United States. By 1931, Butler was publicly speaking out against war and fascism, and during a speech in January in Philadelphia titled, How to Prevent War, he repeated a story that he had heard from Cornelius Vanderbilt Jr. that Vanderbilt had been riding around with Mussolini in Italy, and Mussolini had run over and killed a child. Instead of stopping, Mussolini allegedly drove on, telling Vanderbilt, It was only one life. What is one life in the affairs of the state? Which is a very fascist thing to say. Mussolini was furious when he heard that Butler had told the story and the Italian government demanded an apology. Butler was arrested in the United States for insulting the Italian dictator. Charges were dropped after Butler was made to write an apology letter, but Butler was furious and resigned his commission, arguing that he was finished being, quote, a racketeer for capitalism, end quote, and saying, quote, I helped make Mexico safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the national city bank boys to collect revenues in. I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. In China, I helped to see it that Standard Oil went its way unmolested. He also went down to Hooverville to talk to the veterans in the summer of 1932 and to show his support for their cause, telling them, who the hell has done all the bleeding for this country but you fellas? And referring to their attempts to get paid their bonuses as the greatest demonstration of Americanism we have ever had. Pure Americanism. Butler was already known as a soldier's general, and so he was very warmly received by the bonus army. Days after Butler's speech, MacArthur would march on Hoovertown with bayonets and tear gas. In part because of the way he handled the bonus army situation, but mostly due to how he handled the Great Depression in general, Hoover lost the 1932 election by double digits to Franklin D. Roosevelt. In his first 100 days in office, Roosevelt enacted sweeping financial reform, including taking the U.S. dollar off of the gold standard. This meant that, rather than being tied to the amount of gold held by the state, the dollar would be worth whatever the global market decided it would be worth. This allowed the U.S. government to print off more money to inject into the economy, but it also created the potential for inflation, in which the dollar is worth less than it was, and things cost more dollars than they used to. To rich industrialists who had gathered a massive private fortune, the idea that the dollar now had a free-floating value was very alarming. On the other hand, to people who had lost their jobs, the idea that the government was about to inject a pile of new money into the economy was promising. Now, I should say that at this point, all we've done so far is just set up the actual conspiracy. 
which we are now finally ready to get to. In order to do this, I'm also going to switch from reporting well-known and accepted historical facts to relying on the testimony of a couple men. Because after Roosevelt's election, Smedley Butler claimed that he was visited by two men named Gerald McGuire, a bond salesman for a large bank named Grayson Murphy and & Company, and Bill Doyle, a commander of the Massachusetts American Legion. According to Butler, they suggested that since Butler was so respected by veterans, he should make a speech in front of the Connecticut American Legion in which he attacked the idea of the American dollar being taken off the gold standard. Butler told them that he didn't care about the gold standard, he just wanted to help the veterans get what they were due. McGuire and Doyle offered to give Butler $1,000 to make a short speech, about twenty grand in 2020 money, and also said that they would pay to have other men planted in the crowd to make sure the speech received strong applause and support. The end goal would be to have Butler take over leadership of the entire American Legion. Butler refused as he was suspicious of the two men's motives and concerned about where their money was coming from. McGuire kept in touch with Butler, and a few months later Butler demanded to meet one of the men behind McGuire who was putting up the money. McGuire agreed, and Butler met with a wealthy banker named Robert Sterling Clark. This was a guy who was the heir of the Singer sewing machine fortune. Clark had actually served under Butler in China as a Marine, and Butler remembered him as the millionaire lieutenant who had a lot of money, but wasn't taken that seriously by anyone. Clark again tried to convince Butler to deliver a speech to veterans, urging them to protest Roosevelt's plan to get off the gold standard. Butler again rejected the offer, arguing that soldiers didn't care about the gold standard, they just wanted to get paid the money they were owed. McGuire continued meeting with Butler to try to win him over. Finally, Butler demanded to know what was really going on, and in the summer of 1934, after returning from a trip to Europe, McGuire came clean to Butler at a table in an empty hotel restaurant in Philadelphia. Butler claimed that McGuire represented a cabal of wealthy American industrialists, including J.P. Morgan, American Steel, General Motors, and the DuPont family. McGuire had been in Europe to meet with and learn from the fascist paramilitary organizations that were moving continental Europe away from democratic systems towards totalitarian fascist systems, group like the Black Shirts of Italy and the Nazi stormtroopers of Germany, as well as the Croix de Feu in France, who were organized and financed by wealthy French industrialists who were trying to force France to turn fascist, as her neighbors already had. McGuire's backers wanted to form a similar organization in the United States, using the angry and disenfranchised veterans as muscle, and Butler would be the man to lead that group against the White House and against Roosevelt. That massive army could march on Washington and force Roosevelt to appoint Butler to a role in the cabinet that would then replace the Secretary of State. Roosevelt would then step aside to perform purely symbolic duties as a powerless figurehead, the Vice President would resign completely, and Butler would seize control of the mechanisms of the state and become the sort of dictator that fascist Italy and Nazi Germany already had. Butler would be an American Mussolini, an American Hitler. That's a lot of power to offer a person, but McGuire's backers had apparently chosen the wrong person to be dictator, as Butler was no fan of fascism or of corporate America. According to Butler, he went along with McGuire in order to secretly gather more information on who was behind this plot against the White House. To assist Butler in his investigation, he received help from a journalist from the Philadelphia Record newspaper named Paul French. French also met with McGuire, posing as a supporter, and confirmed Butler's suspicions about the motivations behind the plot. By the fall of 1934, rumors were starting to circulate in Washington, D.C. about a plot to unseat President Roosevelt, and two congressmen formed an official committee to investigate the rumors. 
Congressman Samuel Dickstein looks into the matter and starts to put together the plot, including the part where Smedley Butler is recruited to be the head of the American Stormtrooper Army. When the congressman's people approached Butler, Butler decided to go public with the plot and held a press conference in which he said he was going to go along with and cooperate with the investigation. A congressional meeting was held. Butler, McGuire, and French were all called to testify. Butler and French both spoke about the details of the plot that they had uncovered, but McGuire denied them, although he did admit to meeting Butler several times, but only in a friendly way. He also denied that the reason for his trip to Europe was to study fascist veterans organizations. But letters written by McGuire from Europe were entered into evidence, which clearly showed that McGuire was hiding the truth and lying about his trip, and that Butler and French were telling the truth. However, no more witnesses are called. Robert Sterling Clark, who was financing McGuire, was living in France and out of the reach of Congress, and no one from J.P. Morgan, General Motors, American Steel, or the DuPont family were forced to come in to testify. Despite the evidence backing Butler's account, the largest newspapers in the country attacked Butler's testimony, character, and even sanity, and defended the name of the industrialists that were named as conspirators. To clear his name, Butler held another press conference to speak directly to the American people. I appeared before the Congressional Committee, the highest representation of the American people under subpoena to tell what I knew of activities, which I believe might lead to an attempt to set up a fascist dictatorship. The plan as outlined to me was to form an organization of veterans, to use as a bluff or as a club at least, to intimidate the government and break down our democratic institutions. The upshot of the whole thing was that I was supposed to lead an organization of 500,000 men which would be able to take over the functions of government. I talked with an investigator for this committee who came to me with a subpoena on a Sunday, November 18th. He told me they had unearthed evidence linking my name with several such veteran organizations. As it then seemed to me to be getting serious, I felt it was my duty to tell all I knew of such activities to this committee. My main interest in all this is to preserve our democratic institutions. I want to retain the right to vote. I have the right to speak freely and the right to write. If we maintain these basic principles, our democracy is safe. No dictatorship can exist with suffrage, freedom of speech, and press. But there was no follow-up from the government and no further investigations or interviews. In time, the business plot would largely disappear from the collective memory, and the corporations and wealthy industrialists who had been named by Butler and French would go on to continue to amass enormous wealth and influence. Butler would die in 1940 of cancer at the age of 58, one of the most decorated soldiers in American history, and one of the fiercest opponents of what would eventually be called the military-industrial complex, which is a subject for a future episode. To finish, I would like to read directly from the official McCormick-Dickstein Congressional Report. In the last few weeks of the committee's official life, it received evidence showing that certain persons had made an attempt to establish a fascist organization in this country. There is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. Democracy is a flawed institution. It's a clumsy institution. It's an irritating institution. It's also a very fragile institution. And one that requires vigilance to protect.